0: Good afternoon. We're going to get the show back on the road here um, on a slightly broader topic of how the Arab and U.S. media see the relationship between the United States and the Arab world changing for the better or the worse and why that's happening. Um, We're going to start first by giving everybody on the panel here Five minutes to ten um, close.
1: Ten close. Can you help get some people back to the, so as to do good justice to the people here on the dais?
0: <laughs> All the speakers are going to open up the session with a five-minute talk. We decided we'd keep it brief to begin with, so that we can. Have a more animated session as we go along. Um, I'm going to give the two who just spoke a rest <laughs> and start with uh, Ragita Dirgum, De- an old friend of mine from the Middle East, and, and um, she has been commenting for El Hayat on Arab-American relations for how many decades? Many <laughs> And ask her to start. And then um, next, uh, I'm going to ask Julian Peque, who who covers Congress for the Al-Monitor, an online newspaper that really does a very good job in covering the Arab world. And perhaps he can help explain to us the congressional attitude in, in the case of Jasta which is, I'm hoping he will talk about. And then we have Yara Bayoumi, who is um, with Reuters here in Washington, but has just come back from the Gulf Dubai and the Reuters Bureau in um, Dubai. And I'm sure she is quite well acquainted with how, how the Arab countries out there feel about the United States and its policy. But let's start with R- Regita.
2: Thank you, David. I, uh, I hope the organizers will help us a little bit by really pressing on those outside the hall to kindly speak outside the doors rather than at the expense of, uh, of uh, this very important conversation we should have because between the dishes and the outdoor noise, it's very hard. I have been sitting back there at times and I couldn't hear anything. So. you. Um, let me uh, start out by being quite open about this. I feel that we need to, to, uh, to say it as it is in some cases in the Arab-American relationship, uh, whether it is amongst the public or between the media. I believe the disconnect continues. I believe there is a deeper distrust uh, there continues to be a disinterest by the american public in the arab wars as they call them and there is dismay by the arab public particularly in light of american position vis-a-vis syria the media on both sides have not tried enough to address the disillusionment and its consequences Americans, in terms of the general public, genuinely believe that the raging wars in the Arab region are solely the making of the Arabs and Muslims. So the attitude is, so let them kill each other. At most, attention to the Russian component in the Syrian war is emerging only recently. Hardly is there any mention of the Iranian component in the Syrian war on the side of Bashar al-Assad and with the help of important militias. The Arab general opinion, on the other hand, is accusative and holds American foreign policy responsible for the raging wars, particularly those feeding the sectarian-Sunni-Shiite divide. From President Bush's um, President George W. Bush, a war in Iraq and Afghanistan, which helped Iran get rid of two of its most formidable enemies, to the pivot towards the Islamic Republic of Iran by President Barack Obama, American policies towards Arabs have been seen as antagonistic and condescending, no matter how much the GCC states invested in the alliance with the United States. Playing Shiites and Sunnis against each other is viewed by Americans as indigenous, vintage Islamic, and by Arabs as quintessential American policy. Such issues are barely covered in the American media, but they are omnipresent in the Arab media. There is no serious debate on American foreign policies except by a few serious columnists, and I would point out to my dear friend David Ignatius in this regard because I have followed what pain it has been to bring the issues to the forefront of American uh, media, and uh, we have several good columnists. Uh, not, I'm not speaking of David alone, but there are very few and not, not enough. Uh, American television was much more receptive, I must say. David Ottaway mentioned that I've been on American television for decades, yes. Uh, the first time I was on American television was in 1979 with the mcneil News Hour. It was Robin McNeil who interviewed me, for those who are old enough to know that. And uh, and for for more than 33 years, I've been a fiction on American television um, discussing issues of interest from the Palestinian-Israeli conflict to why do they hate us, to the Iraq war, uh, to the war on terror and the rise of Iran. But suddenly, I will tell you, the doors closed. The doors became shut. I'm not sure it's only me, uh, because I have seen few of my Arab colleagues are on the screen um, in comparison to the way it used to be. So I don't know what's going on, whether it's a stifling that is intended, or whether somebody said something that was not liked. It could be maybe I said something that led decision makers to say, shut her out. But I don't know. We could discuss that a little later. All I know is that listening to Americans who are of Arab origin, and we are Americans, is useful and beneficiary because it could help bridge the divide and the other way around. I am thrilled when I see David Ignatius, as mentioned by Adel Suraifi, when his talk column is translated and uh, in our competitor, al sharq al-Awsat, um, because it's important to read him in Arabic, for the Arabs to read him, and so to read such a sober and responsible opinion. I myself, my column is published in Al-Hayah. I am uh, the bureau chief of Al-Hayah uh, in New York, and uh, my uh, Friday column is translated and published in the Huffington Post and, and in .net. So, and it, it gets carried by newspapers throughout the world. All I want to say is that we need more of that, We need to share the conversation so that we can expand it and take it forward. We need to go back to the essence of mutual respect, and that is listening well to what the other has to say while reserving the right to differ. We have a big job ahead. The thing that I worry about is not only the need for resuming American leadership in the world, it is the necessity that Americans continue to claim the higher moral ground globally. That is what I really would like to have back. This privilege has eroded and has been seriously jeopardized by turning a blind eye on the crimes and uh, whether they are war crimes or crimes against humanity, in particular in Syria. It's not becoming for the United States of America to look away when such atrocities are committed, whether by ISIS or by the Russian planes. It is such important matters that matter, and that's what we in the media should be putting forward so that a new debate can hopefully instill some sense rather than the prevailing raging madness everywhere. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, Julian, if you don't mind, uh, the minister has to leave shortly, so maybe we should...
1: Uh, let him speak before before he leaves and so and um, many of you need to know that this is not an ordinary minister of information and culture if you look carefully at your program booklet you will see that he is an inner circle member of the inner circle on uh, political and security issues on one hand and economic and development issues on the other You can't get more central in terms of jugular, vital uh, challenges and issues and needs and concerns than those.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, Again, thank you very much for uh, inviting me here. Uh, It's really a pleasure and uh, an opportunity, actually. Uh, I once stood here. Uh, or sat here as a, an audience, one of the audience uh, listening and learning from this, uh, s- these sessions and I hope to provide some uh, um, uh, uh, th- this time. Um, well, uh, I think uh, plenty has been mentioned today and plenty of questions have been mentioned uh, but I would like to address uh, maybe uh, uh, an issue which I think is very important to um, uh, focus on which is uh, perhaps the um, cultural transformation in Saudi Arabia, uh, one issue uh, which is paramount to me. And the other one is the media coverage uh, as well. Uh, We tend to, uh, I've worked uh, and I'm a veteran of the media as well, uh, like Raghida, so uh, we worked uh, uh, in different Uh, media institutions and we realize and understand how it's difficult sometimes to uh, deliver a message or deliver or actually portray uh, a situation uh, that is happening somewhere uh, around the world. Um, uh, These days it's very difficult for journalists to travel to places like Yemen, for example. Uh, It's very difficult for them to travel to places like Libya, Syria, Iraq, and who suffers? The readers, actually, uh, because we're we're uh, writing something uh, about places and about people and about situations that we have not been there to examine uh, by ourselves, and uh, um, uh, and one of the the reasons for for that is the continuation uh, and the growth of terrorism that has hit uh, even uh, amongst uh, its victims the uh, uh, journalists Uh, and uh, um, if you count the number of journalists who have tried to uh, uh, go and report um, from difficult situations uh, you would count a number of them. Um, I lost, like, one or two of my friends, uh, one in Syria and another one in Iraq. Uh, uh, they were just trying to report um, on those issues. Uh, the other thing um, uh, on the matter of coverage is that we always tend to uh, cover the sensational stuff. Uh, but the thing or the things which are important to the people uh, are less uh, covered, uh, which makes me sometimes uh, um, unhappy, because uh, I see, you know, uh, with the, uh, every reporter coming to the Sa- Saudi Arabia or other places, um, I understand the situation. They have like three days or four days to leave. Uh, his editors, you know, provided him very little to attend, and he goes there, uh, and he needs a story, uh, and definitely... Uh, he needs to have a sensational story to, the, uh, t- to justify the budget that he took uh, for the trip. Uh, it's different somehow from journalism of the uh, 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 1940s and 50s and 60s, where uh, a journalist would go uh, to a place, uh, live there for a year or two or four, uh, and report from there uh, uh, continuously. Uh, now, we have less uh, reporters who are stationed in different countries. Um, uh, and I think this has affected even our way of uh, uh, um, assessing uh, the situations uh, um, in different countries. Um, and you don't get it right. Um, I remember as an editor, uh, it was very difficult to um, write some stories or accept some stories or articles without knowing exactly what happened uh, down there. Uh, and sometimes you would hear some conflicting stories uh, about what happened. Um, so that's on the, on the uh, media coverage. Uh, the other part is on the cultural uh, transformation. Um, we have embarked parked on a, a, a very important um, uh, cultural initiatives in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we, we, with David, have spoke just uh, briefly about it. But uh, uh, it's part of our uh, um, um, vision of how to transform uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, In a country where arts are not celebrated as uh, they used to be or they should be, um, uh, you have people uh, uh, feeling less uh, 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 about humanity, about common things that drive uh, people together and um, this is why I think that uh, pressing on the arts and the arts initiatives, uh, we spoke about the um, uh, about the establishment of the Royal Complex of Arts that would include um, all the uh, uh, forms of arts that we know, uh, modern and folklore as well and we also um, are embarking on developing a media city. One of the uh, problems, I think, that, we, that I have seen, uh, at least uh, uh, in the media, especially in the Arab media, is the content. Uh, you don't have Arab content. Uh, Arab content is, is very, li- uh, very little. And when you have it, it's mo- mostly drama, and it's mostly about dysfunctional families or dysfunctional uh, situations. Um, therefore uh, one of the goals that we have set is to build a media city and the uh, goal behind it is actually to enable uh, young women and men uh, uh, in Saudi to be able to be directors, actors um, and to be able to uh, deliver content uh, in Arabic that represents uh, ourselves and that can be uh, a guide and that can be uh, something that the younger generation can look up to, and see, and understand from. Uh, at the moment, you, you know, we have, uh, you know, a lack um, uh, of content, and therefore, you have an audience uh, which is not your own. Uh, uh, you have a, a young uh, um, generation who can be very easily persuaded or uh, affected or. Um, pushed uh, into the hands of extremism just because you don't have the uh, tools and you don't have the content uh, suitable enough to uh, provide them. I think that's uh, enough for me to say at the moment. Thank you.
0: Uh, can, I have <laughs> three questions for you. Yeah. 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 Since it's the minister is leaving, I'm gra- grabbing and taking the opportunity. I have three oh, co- questions, three questions for, for him before he leaves. I'll read them all, and you can answer once you want. Uh, When will the media in Saudi Arabia support the freedom of opinion in both TV production and journalism? Why does it take so long for a foreign journalist to get a visa to Saudi Arabia? Why is it that Saudi newspapers don't carry sensitive news and agreements, and Saudis read about it in the outside sources?
3: Okay. Uh, If you allow me to to see them, not to forget the questions one by one. Uh, For the first one, uh, about the uh, uh, media, Um, one of the things that we uh, uh, face was the freedom of expression. Uh, And if you say the freedom of expression, uh, you need to put a standard for it, you know, like the freedom of expression according to whom uh, and to which country, to which culture. Um, to which history uh, and in Saudi Arabia um, we have freedom of expression uh, to some extent and we would like to increase it to, to more but one freedom of expression that they already have is to criticize the minister of culture okay so <laughs> that I guarantee for you that's happening every day uh, and uh, um, it's always uh, I'll, 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 let you in on something that happens every Monday uh, when we go to the cabinet. Uh, I'm always uh, uh, late entering the cabinet uh, uh, just to be away from my fellow ministers. Uh, And why? Because somebody would have complained about them or wrote something about them in the newspaper and I had to answer to them. Uh, So I'm always on the side of the journalists uh, because I was a former journalist. Uh, therefore uh, expanding it and uh, actually showing it. Uh, and I think one of the our problems is, is that we we didn't have a way to show exactly uh, how uh, um, uh, the press works in Saudi Arabia. Uh, everybody thought that the press was controlled in Saudi Arabia. Well, you know, if you think it's cont- controlled, uh, you know, uh, you can help me out uh, in that. Uh, but... Nevertheless, uh, we have uh, more than three initiatives that are focused on uh, uh, improving the uh, image of Saudi press to the outside world. And as well, um, one of them I'm going to speak about, which is the second one, Uh, why foreign journalists take so long to... uh, uh... Well, very easily. Uh, We have four months, which are very hot in Saudi Arabia, okay, so... A lot of journalists would would like to come uh, from August, I think. And and then you have Ramadan. Very few also journalists would like to come in Ramadan. Uh, So you have a few months uh, when the government is functioning. Uh, But uh, our problem here is more electronic and uh, modernizing. uh, And it's not about, you know, rejecting journalists. Actually, we had more than... uh, 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 30 journalists, uh, foreign journalists, uh, just at the border uh, uh, going to Yemen uh, a week ago. Uh, imagine the, the, the number. And once we have the uh, media city uh, established and running, um, we're inviting uh, um, uh, newspapers and TVs and foreign media to actually be stationed in Saudi Arabia better than sending somebody uh, for a single visa. Um, what's the other thing um, about some agreements? This uh, I didn't understand this question.
0: Oh, it, well, I think it was, why do Saudi newspapers don't carry sensitive news mm-hmm. and the Saudis have to find out about it from outside sources?
3: Well, um, <laughs> from my side, I, I would say the opposite. You know, they, they always carry... Uh, sensitive news and sometimes incorrect news. Uh, I don't want to be... Uh, um, but uh, that's the nature, I think, of, of uh, journalism. Uh, sometimes you get the story right, sometimes you get it wrong. Uh, and, uh, and sometimes you're provided with the information and sometimes you're not. Uh, sometimes you can get to the source and sometimes you, you don't. Uh, what we have tried to do Um, uh, In one of our initiatives uh, is called, uh, uh, I don't recall the name uh, at the moment, but is actually to provide a center, a centralized center um, uh, within the Saudi press agency to answer all the questions regarding anything uh, that is related to politics or economics or sensitive issues or agreements that any journalist, whether it's a Saudi or a non-Saudi, to be uh, answered. I know that, you know, uh, sometimes uh, as a journalist, you know, somebody would not answer you in a certain ministry or a certain agency. Uh, but it's our job um, in the near future to make that uh, reversible. So uh, we're allowing the system to say that, you know, if you don't have a, a comment from the ministry or the agency, then we can answer the question for you. It's our responsibility to answer. Thank you.
0: Thank
3: you. Yeah, thank you very much.
0: Thank you, and we we wish you success. Julian? Julian's gonna explain to us Congress.
4: (laughs) Got a congressman along with me. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you, Dr. Anthony, and the National Council for the invitation. Um, Like Dr. Ottawa said, I'm the congressional correspondent for i monitor the U.S. news site dedicated to bringing the region's perspective to Washington and beyond. So I'll focus my opening remarks on Congress. You've already heard plenty today about U.S. Gulf relations. As President Obama would say, it's complicated. I don't want to belabor that point, but it's important to understand that this isn't only the President's opinion. And um, I want to play for you a post 9-11 bill interview that captures sentiments on both sides of the aisle. This is pretty short.
1: Hey, I've got significant concerns about their relationship with- hope you can bodies, hear those. Right? I mean, you know, they, they made a deal with
4: the devil. <laughs> no, all right, well, all right, if you can't hear it. I'll just read it to you. I mean, this is uh, Senator Corker, Senate Foreign Relations Chairman. Uh, Really briefly what he's saying. I've got some significant concerns about their relation with Wahhabists, right? I mean, you know, they made a deal with the devil years ago, and now they're inextricably present, linked to that, and tied to that. That's of great concern, I think, to most every person in this body. So they know they have issues to deal with. They more than know that. So hopefully something good is going to come out of this. He's talking about the overwhelming... uh, Senate vote in favor of overturning the uh, president's veto on the 9-11 bill. Now Corker is about as sympathetic to the Saudi point of view as folks get on Capitol Hill. Probably many of you know that. He's a harsh critic of Obama's unenforced red line in Syria. He voted against the Iran deal. And he uh, is leading the effort to rewrite the JASTA bill, despite voting for it in the first place. But his remarks hint at a black hole at the uh, heart of US-Arab relations 15 years after 9-11. The bilateral relationship has long focused on shared interests rather than shared values. And with the U.S. public souring on U.S. interventionism, you can expect efforts to disentangle America from a region to go on long after Obama leaves office. Consider that just a week before the JASTA vote, 27 senators voted to prevent what should have been a routine billion-dollar tank sale to Riyadh because of fears the U.S. is getting dragged into another bloody quagmire, this time in Yemen. Now, even the armed deal's most fervent supporters, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, hardly mentioned U.S.-Saudi ties during that debate. They framed instead the issue around the uh, Houthis Vahufi, being Persian puppets that need to be stopped. And don't think for a minute that Congress is done with Yemen either. Any latent sympathy for the Houthis died the minute they shot missiles at the USS Mason earlier this month. But you can bet Congress will press the White House to clarify its strategy in Yemen when they return from recess. I wouldn't get my hopes up too high, but the uh, Washington establishment is going to start clamoring for intervention in Syria anytime soon, either. Right now, everyone is talking about all these think tank reports that are coming out. I'm sure a lot of you have read them, calling for renewed U.S. leadership in the region. Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta, Center for American Progress, wants a no-fly zone to ground Syrian warplanes. I wouldn't bet the farm on it. Hillary herself, Hillary Clinton herself, may have endorsed the idea during the last presidential debate but only, she said, after a lot of negotiation. But no amount of negotiation is going to get Russia on board. As for Donald Trump, he's flatly said that confronting Russia and Syria would lead to World War III. In Iraq, both parties are equally reluctant to engage more U.S. troops to defeat Daesh or keep the peace afterwards. Beyond platitudes about boosting support for the Kurds, America's boots on the ground and Washington's narrow worldview, Democrats and Republicans are keen to let the region sort out its problems on its own. On Iran, remember that the pro-nuclear deal Jewish lobby uh, J Street enforced, endorsed more than half the Democrats running for, the House, for House seats this time around. That's the first time in their history. The House will likely vote right after the election to renew snapback sanctions on Iran's energy sector if, if Tehran cheats on the deal, but that's the extent of bipartisan agreement right now. And even that bill may have trouble clearing the Senate. Nor is either candidate expected to make a big push to relaunch Israel Palestinian peace talks in the short term. As for the fallout from the Arab Spring, it's basically back to business as usual with Egypt, Bahrain, and others. The U.S. will largely look the other way on human rights violations in exchange for stable governance, at least until the next social explosion again throws the whole relationship into upheaval. I'd like to end this on a positive note, so let's talk about one of the few places where the U.S.-Arab relationship is flourishing right now, Without a single lobbyist on its payroll, tiny Tunisia has managed to double the amount of aid it gets from the U.S. over the past couple of years. The Jasmine Revolution, as they call it, is a cost celeb for Washington's human rights lobby, and that's clearly paying dividends. So I'd like to end on that note. Thank you very much.
5: pleasure to be here today Um, so as David said um, I arrived in DC about six months ago and the one of the main things that I couldn't really get my head around was really the absence of nuance and big picture uh, whenever the topic of the Middle East and its relationship with the US um, came up the conventional narrative uh, for the last couple of years at least was you know in 2011 President Obama turned his back on traditional allies, and in the quest for the nuclear deal deal with Iran, um, it meant that President Obama turned his back on his Gulf allies um, and turned a blind eye to what is considered, um, what a lot of Gulf allies consider to be Iran's malign behavior in the region. And that's really where the debate has been stuck for the last few years, and I'd say that the media has a big part to play in that. Um, in many cases, uh, we haven't really been able to drive or move the debate forward from that. And that's due to a couple of reasons. You know, Sometimes we generally need a simple narrative or a simple arc um, to frame a story. Um, but that often ends up being quite narrow, which means that much of the nuance is lost. Um, A big part of that also obviously has to do with the changing landscape of the media that we're in now. Uh, When you have traditional newspapers with fewer resources um, for foreign news, the focus is often on urgent conflict reporting. And when we're competing with more media outlets than ever before, the focus is always on how, you know, a story that is stark, uh, that is more definitive than others. So just as an example... Um, two days ago, a, uh, a colleague of mine had told me she was going to Dubai. And I, say, and I said, oh, that's great. Please bring me back some Batil dates, which I, if some of you here know are just really great dates that you can get in Dubai. She then told me, and I'm picking up from where the minister left off, where he said that you know, the media was different in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But this is in the late 90s, where she wrote a story about just the date industry um, in the Gulf. And I remember thinking as I read the story when she sent it to me, it would be very difficult to see a story like that being written now. It's a nice-to-have story. Um, It sheds a bit of of light about an industry we don't really know very much about, but it's not focused on conflict right now, which is where most of the resources are focused on. Um, and 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 that means that because a lot of the focus is on conflict, it means that the audience and where we are today, the US audience, often only gets a perception of the region which is driven in conflict. And that is, and that also permeates in the discourse here that we then see from policymakers on both sides of the spectrum. We heard President Obama saying that Middle East conflicts date back millennia. So the idea being that this is really the only this is how we're viewing the Middle East. And then of course we have Uh, the Republican presidential candidate also talking about how the value of Muslim Americans, for instance, is in what they can bring in reporting on suspicious activities, for instance. Um, And all of that, of course, then gives a very skewed perspective of the region, one that is rooted in threats rather than opportunities. Um, Sorry. And finally, just one more thing I'd like to um, add here was on how difficult it is to frame public perception, especially when we are in, a, in an atmosphere where we are able to customize, customize, customize the kind of media that we want to read, that we want to absorb, that we want to have around us. Um, and, that may, and that makes it extremely difficult to change. So I'm sure a lot of you, um, for instance, during, during the, in the, in, in the run-up to the Brexit debate, I had a lot of colleagues and friends who said they deleted anyone on their Facebook wall who was pro or anti whatever position they were on. And that generally means that you're only subjecting yourself to a particular mindset that you want to know and you're then shielding yourself from the rest of the conversation. So those were a few of the challenges that I wanted to bring up today and I look forward to discussing them after that. Thank you.
6: So um, I'll be uh, uh, brief. If the first thing I want to say is what a pleasure it is for me to be here with um, dear colleagues who I've known um, since early in my career, uh, Ragada and uh, David Ottaway. Uh, these two people are, represent the best of what my business is about, and it's really um, a, a, an honor for me to be with you. I also love meeting uh, younger journalists. Sometimes I worry that our business is running out of gas. It's like a sputtering car trying to go uphill. And when I see uh, young journalists like Yara working for Reuters, a great news organization, I feel like uh, we have a a future in our business. So it's great to be with you. Um, Minister Altarefi said in his conversation with me that he wanted candid conversation Uh, about Saudi Arabia and about the Middle East, and so I'm going to try to be as candid as I can. I I do think there's something broken in the way in which the media seeks to cover the Arab world, and I think it needs to be fixed. I think the core of the problem is that there isn't enough openness. People talk about it being open to the media, but uh, the media quickly encounter obstacles when they try to report aggressively and directly. They find themselves banned from a country. Uh, They find their work under attack. Um, And I I honestly think that the, the problems of this part of the world that I grew to love 35 years ago will not get significantly better until there is a more open dialogue. Part of what makes this crazy country that we're in now work is that, you know, we have nightmarish arguments, we're living through one of them. But there is still a way to keep um, uh, talking to each other. So that's, that's my first wish. When I started covering the Middle East uh, for the Wall Street Journal in 1980, it was possible to go everywhere. It Seems strange that in that period there was more opportunity to have access. But if you were in Beirut, uh, and you were in uh, uh, West Beirut, uh, in in, uh, in Hamra, and you wanted to go to see the Kataib in East Beirut. You you crossed the green line. You had to slump down pretty low on, in the car sometimes, uh, when the when the green zone uh, line was was for real. But but you were able to do that. I have stashed away in my. Um, In my desk, uh, press passes from every Lebanese militia, uh, which were, uh, they're they're comical to take out some of these pictures. But the point is that in those days, people wanted coverage. They wanted to tell their story to us, whether you were Yasser Arafat or whether uh, you were Walid Jumblat or Nabi Barry or anybody really in the Middle East uh, in those days, I think, wanted to tell their story. And that led to a kind of openness. And people had to tolerate that sometimes the stories we told were not going to be the ones that they would have wanted, but they wanted us to come back. They wanted to have access to the international communications chain that we represented. Today, they don't feel that they need us uh, and and they feel that they can communicate directly uh, through uh, ministries, through Twitter accounts. Uh, through controlled media channels, Uh, and so um, people from independent news organizations uh, have have greater uh, difficulty. Uh, I I have written that I feel we live in in an embedded world where you're supposed to embed with an army or a political party or uh, a government and tell the story from their side or you won't get access. And I hate living in this embedded world. I think that uh, being unembedded, moving back and forth across the green zone metaphorically, moving among all the different sides, having that implicit white flag that says, I'm a journalist, I don't have a side here, I'm not embedded, uh, that's, that's the way that this, that this works. And we've, we've gotten very far from it. Um, we, we live in a world, as I said, where people think they can communicate the message directly. And in some ways, that's wonderful. That's the world of social media, where, where I mean, yesterday, uh, last few days, I wanted to know what was going on in the battle for Mosul. I've been in Iraq twice this year, but I can't go there now and, and, and see that battle unfold. But I can go to hashtag Mosul and I can see all the video that's been posted in the last 24, 48 hours from courageous reporters and just citizens who were there, who were watching, uh, who were recording uh, the images of battle and conflict. Uh, you know, I, Some of the scenes as people re- retook their villages around Mosul, the joy in their faces as they were liberated from uh, the Daesh uh, occupation, uh, tell you a, uh, an important part of the story. So, so that's wonderful. The communication directly uh, through social media, through what's put up every day, every minute on Twitter, uh, I I wouldn't want to change. The problem is that it's so subject to manipulation. When we live in a hashtag world, you know, we live in a world that says hashtag Mosul and hashtag hate Mosul. You know, we, we, we live in a world where the streams of communication are divided between the different hashtags, perspectives, armies. Uh, so I, I, that's, that's the world that we've ended up in. I, I love social media and the, and the openness it gives us, but this the way it reinforces polarization and division uh, frightens me. So I wanna uh, close with, with, with this thought. I'm gonna take uh, my former editor Adil uh, Tarefi, but really take uh, all of my Saudi and Middle East friends at their word when they say they want more coverage. They want us to see the Middle East whole, to, to open a broader debate. I mean, I thought that uh, Justin said something really important when he warned us that Bob Corker, arguably the person in the U.S. Senate who's most sympathetic. To the Saudi viewpoint, ended up voting for Jasta, a position that Saudi Arabia is so upset about. There, there's a message there that you that you have to have to take to, to, to take seriously. But so I want to take people up on that on that offer. Um, keep traveling, keep listening, keep interviewing, being respectful of the people that I talk to, but also trying to ask them questions that I know uh, my my readers uh, want me to ask. So thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you, David. Uh, Speaking of Beirut, I remember those days when we started at the Commodore Hotel. We went through various militia with our press pass up to the Israeli press center in the outskirts of Beirut and then went back all the way through all all the militia, and back to the Commodore to write our stories. I mean, will we ever be able to do that again? (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask a couple questions to start things going. Um, I'm concerned, or I want to know what people think about whether something is fundamentally changing in the congressional and U.S. attitude towards the Arab world and that Jasta, as you, it really was quite an eye opener, I think, to all of us. Does this signal that something fundamental is changing in how Americans think about the Arab world, and not just Saudi Arabia? Uh, who would like to, Ragida? Yeah,
2: sure. Is this on? Is this hot? Yeah, it's on. Uh, no, I think in recent history, I think there has been. Uh, a de facto freezing of Arabs in the frame of 9-11. I think 9-11 has uh, really colored the thoughts of Americans as to who are those who hurt us. They are Arabs. They don't call them Muslims. It is not the frame of Muslims as such. I think it's more Arabs because they uh, they were Arabs. But there was no graduation out of that. Prior to this, I think the Arabs have been frozen in the frame of Arab-Israeli conflict, and it was always presented that the aggressors are Arabs. It was never really put forward that, yeah, at times Israel was an aggressor as well, and there's something called occupation, which is a violation of human rights, at least. But so then you, you had this inherent problem with Arabs, Then you had terrorism coming through, uh, whether it's in uh, the the one that uh, George W. Bush wanted to wage a war against, the war against terror in Iraq, and then uh, the hatred of that war itself also reflected on those bloody Arabs, we have to fight their wars, and we are dragged into their wars, let them kill each other. So I don't think there has been a real, um, a real, um, Address of that relationship. I know we like each other. I mean, I, you know, I, I see you and did, and you know, remembering you and David, remembering your days in Beirut, and with, with, with pleasure. I know Beirut is not the typical Arab city. I, mean, I know there has been much more freedom there, but there is affinity. There is when you go there and you mix, especially with us Lebanese, because I'd like to say something nice about us, other than we kill each other. Um, but but in really, there is there is you know there is no problem culturally. What I want to say, it's been a political argument. It's been the issue of what the Arabs are thinking, Americans are doing, and as far as the foreign policy, particularly it was Israel at one point, and now, like I said in my opening remarks, turning. Um, a blind eye on what's happening in, in, in Syria, but also I think that from the American point of view, it has been, um, they, they have been, the public in general has been led to believe that, you know, Israel is the little country in that neighborhood where these monsters are all Arabs. That's where it started. Then came 9-11 and then here we are still suffering from that.
0: Anybody else like to comment? Well, listen,
4: sure, I'll go ahead. Um, is this on here? Yeah. So I think if there's a silver lining with JASTA, it's that it's, it's brought all this to light. I mean, in my mind, JASTA is like the Armenian Genocide Bill, you know? If it's going to reach the floor, it was always going to pass. And so you had these um, lobbyists, et cetera, working to, to prevent that from happening. And um, for whatever reason, you know, now the leadership, McConnell and uh, McCarthy, have, have decided to put it on the floor because there has been so much pressure from the families, but but the underlying support, in my mind anyway, w- was really always there. I mean, this is this should not come as a surprise that it passed once it once it hit the floor, um, and so I, I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, this is this is years, decades of uh, of uh, of perspectives from uh, from lawmakers, you know, that have to get reelected every two years and are, are very close to. Uh, to the feelings of their their electors, and so this is not particularly surprising.
0: Do you think JASTA will be revised? I
4: I do, but every time I mean, I've tried to write follow-up stories to this, looking at it from the Saudi perspective and every time I talk to any of these lawmakers, they are only concerned about how can we rewrite it so that the hit potential hit on U.S. troops for example, is mitigated. They never talk to you about the Saudi relationship. That's Peripheral to them, it's all about, you know, we just passed this thing that could really hurt our troops, could hurt our, our our foreign policy, writ large. But in terms of the Saudi relationship, that that is not what is driving any potential rewrite of Jasta.
1: Uh, yes, uh, David, I think uh, is uh, correct, and so is Julian. And uh, you can take it back to um, the 30s with uh, the sheik of Arabia and. Uh, uh, Rudolph Valentino, et, et cetera. Right straight through uh, to today where uh, Arabs are seen as those, as them, as other. And even though there are 22 Arabs and we're talking about Morocco to Muscat, Baghdad, to Berbera, Algiers, to Aden, Aleppo, and Alexandria in between, uh, there's no real distinguishing between and amongst them. I sat in with a meeting with Paul Ryan and a congressman uh, several years ago in Qatar and the, uh, Qatar uh, uh, Emir was asking the congressman, can you not distinguish between us Qataris who had nothing to do with 9-11 and uh, one of our neighbors who, who that did. And um, the congressman said, well, you're asking too much, uh, Emir. that's a bridge too far. Uh, at Dulles Airport and JFK um, when they slam Arabs up against the wall uh, they don't give a damn whether it's um, a Moroccan or Qatari or Lebanese or Saudi Arabian Uh, if it's an Arab it's an Arab, go after them it's those, it's them they did this quote unquote to us so um, yes uh, put a finger on something that's uh, getting worse, not, not, not better. And that's part of the idea behind the Arab Cultural Institute that would uh, distinguish between and amongst all the many contributions that have been positive to civilization, humanity, and from which America's derived no end of benefit.
5: Yara? Now, I would just add um, like a really small point on the issue of, again, of resources again and how that plays into that. You know, JASTA, there are a lot of countries, um, including most of, um, you know, Saudi Arabia's Arab allies who have voiced, you know, their objection to JASTA as well. But you don't really see that really covered in mainstream U.S. media either, because at this point, it's the secondary story, and it's no longer the primary story of um, here's what Congress passed, here are the difficulties with it, now we move on to like what comes next. So the, again, the complete narrative is always lost when we're reporting on that story. And that also again helps to cement the already negative perceptions that are out there. Uh, you know, I just want to say something very
2: one-liner on Justa. Uh, I honestly think And maybe my Saudi friends will be angry with me now. I think it's also a reflection of uh, um, either a failed diplomacy or failed attention. I think it's amazing to see the result of the vote on JASTA, knowing that at least um, I expect that the Saudi embassy, I'm told it's at least 200 persons. It should be if it's not. And that there are people who are supposed to be doing the lobby. To have that vote uh, is uh, probably... um, a lack of attention, or taking too much for granted, or a failure, straightforward. It shouldn't have happened, and that is a lesson that should be learned, and I think JASTA will be amended, but a new approach, a new uh, way to look at it should be uh, adopted by uh, uh, by all the lawmakers and by the, uh, by the, by the, by the Saudis alike.
0: David? Um, I just wanted to add
6: a uh, uh, brief uh, comment, um, and... Um at the risk of saying something that will be um, uh, uh, seen as as too critical, um, I wrote that it, it would have made an enormous difference in the psychology of that vote. I don't know if the vote would have turned out any differently. If a prominent Saudi official had, in a way that was meaningful for Americans, express the deep concern that Saudi Arabia feels about terrorism. Saudi Arabia has suffered from terrorism. Saudi Arabia, I know from many conversations, uh, people in the kingdom feel remorse about the rise of al-Qaeda, about not having seen things in time. And I think in terms of our debate, that kind of statement from someone from the kingdom would have been really a good thing. Uh, because I think it would have been part of the, the kind of honest dialogue that people need. If people down the road see a Saudi Arabia that's changing in the ways that Adil al-Tarefi said, uh, and the deputy crown prince has, has discussed, a country that has a, is a moderating dialogue with Islam, a country that has theaters and, and art galleries and and a, a sense of cultural life and dynamism, and economic growth um, for its citizens. Uh, there's no way that uh, the media is going to stop people from seeing that or that that won't make a difference. You know, those real changes are going to get through to the American uh, public and, and, you know, a world in which JASTA doesn't pass is a world in which people see those things and they respect uh, the country that's doing them. So, I, I again, I just Since our theme is trying to be open, honest, and candid, I I felt I needed to say that. I I deeply regret the vote. I think it was a terrible mistake. But I I, I do wish, because I wish JASTA had not passed, that there'd been a little more
0: dialogue, a little more of what I just described. I have a question here from the audience. Why is the media against Egypt? Always seize the bad and forget to report on the accomplishments. There is a double standard to cover the news. Would someone like to? Well, I
2: mean, this is, uh, I suppose, it's addressed to the American media. I should let my colleagues answer that. But, uh, but you know, I, th- I think, uh, I think that that in general. Um, there has been much more sympathy with the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood to power uh, by the Western media and particularly the American media because they thought this is democracy. And this is how they looked at it, that, you know, it's their turn to get to rule. And uh, they stopped at that rather than scrutinizing what was the project of the Muslim uh, Brotherhood and how were they performing and how many promises did they make and how many did they betray and how many did they deliver on. I think there was laziness. And this automatic, uh, uh, sort of like, uh, that's it, uh, Muslim brothers uh, have been dealt a bad blow, which is not correct. And that's why lots of Egyptians are angry. This is not to say that, um, that the era of Mr. Sisi is now is, is flouri- flourishing with, with democracy. No, it's a long way before he can prove that he's done the right job. But I think many Egyptians have been, uh, at least a great number of them, those who went to the streets and decided that, yes, they'd like to put a stop to this project of Muslim Brotherhood, they feel they are, uh, they've been betrayed by the embrace, an American embrace of that project.
5: I'll say it, um, at Reuters, you know, speaking for Reuters, um, we have a, you know, a very big presence uh, in Cairo. And it's all, and it's you know one of the stories that we always strive to report um, in as many facets as possible, um, and we always strive to be balanced and a reflection of um, the sentiment that is out there on the streets uh, in Cairo, and also reflecting um, the sentiments and the point of view um, of the government when you know when the stories uh, dictate that, and. But I will say that, as uh, David said, um, sometimes there are countries where we are reporting in where we don't have as much uh, freedom, where we also don't um, we don't get um, an answer always from the other side to questions that the media has as well. and so I mean I think every reporter will tell you the worst thing we like to include in a story is. No comment from someone because we feel that that is a disservice, that it doesn't reflect enough um, of what that side wants to portray. But we do run into that in many cases.
0: Uh, David to uh, me, he has to go write a column. But I have a question about one of your columns. So maybe before you go, you can answer. In your article from October 25th, you addressed the issue of the U.S seduction and abandonment of proxy groups in Syria, the YPG in particular. How do you see this phenomenon playing out at the state actor level? I think state to state, I don't quite know. In other words, are we gonna abandon well, I, uh, states I th- as well as non-state actors? Um,
6: I wrote in a column yesterday uh, that was cited that uh, one of the least endearing uh, characteristics of the United States is that uh, it asks people to take uh, risks and makes sacrifices on behalf of the United States, and then when the going gets difficult, it too often abandons them. Uh, I think that is, sadly, a recurring story um, for our country, and it's one I, I very much wish we could change. Um, I think it's part of our problem today uh, in Iraq. Uh, I think Iraqis um, uh, believed that uh, we meant it when we said we were going to stand up uh, uh, tribal militias, when we were going to be there to to support them if they challenged extremists. And uh, so I think there's a deep sense um, of uh, unhappiness when we don't stick around and they're left uh, often at great uh, risk. Um, so I you know, I, I, I just would close this, again, I, I'm so pleased to be asked to be a part of this event and have a chance to, to, to talk with, with all of you. I think it's really important that the United States not make promises that it can't keep and end up frustrating our friends around the world. We need to be very careful not to overpromise, uh, not, not to draw red lines that we're not prepared to enforce. Uh, but, you know, when a president of the United States uh, makes a commitment on behalf of the country, it, it, people really need to be confident that, it, that, that that's for real. And I think, you know, when you think about the next president, whoever that is, you try to think what's, what's the challenge for that person, it's to rebuild the credibility of our assurances to others that when we say
1: something, we mean it, that we're going to carry it out.
0: Uh, John, you want a closing comment? Um,
1: I, I second that. Uh, to to say what one means and mean what one says when we speak about um, the democratic process and respect uh, for it and we are seen in the United Nations Security Council as the Olympic champion of anti-democratic behavior uh, where uh, we've used the veto 76 times uh, 41 times uh, when the vote would otherwise have been uh, 15 to 0, or it is 14 to 1 and, and the United States uh, vetoes the 14 and therefore uh, aborts the democratic process. Or in January 2006, when in the free, fair, open transparent elections in, the, in Gaza, uh, Hamas won. Uh, Jimmy Carter signed off on this, as did uh, nearly 80 others. Uh, So, oftentimes, there's a physical proximity uh, to a small country at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. If it is uh, perceived to be threatened by the democratic process, uh, then we we oppose that democratic uh, process. With regard to supporting the Muslim Brotherhood victory in Egypt, uh, no one would admit it, but uh, certainly... (laughs) A number of specialists are not necessarily conspiratorial in believing that a lot of people thought, wow, this will embroil uh, the um, area in the Gulf, because the Muslim brothers were implying that they were going to be reaching out to the number one supporter of terrorism in in, um, the Gulf. And uh, many would welcome that, because it's deflective. It's distractive. It changes the agenda. It focuses America's attention, national needs far to the east of the Mediterranean. Uh, as far as possible, uh, New Zealand would do.
0: Uh, anybody else have closing comments?
2: Yeah, I, just, I just would like to say that uh, what, I, what I laid out in my opening statement is really about, uh, I was hoping that we'll get the chance to, 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 to have a conversation about some of the points Uh, particularly when uh, there is um, a lack of honesty in addressing the, uh, the issues that are between the Arabs and the United States. For example, yes, indeed, I know I've heard at this conference many people speak about the Iran element. I think it is fantastic that there is an understanding on the nuclear deal that suits the world, suits the United States, though it's like buying 10 years and 10 years only, which is a big price to pay. If Iran has been allowed, de facto, to use this um, uh, nuclear understanding, nuclear deal, to have a free hand in Arab lands, it's very difficult for uh, Americans to understand that why do we object that Iran runs the affairs of Lebanon or of Syria, or of Iraq, I, it is really a very basic notion. It is, you know, it is these are not Iranian lands. Iran has the right to be a great country within its own borders. It's a historic country, and it it, it is a country that we should live in peace with. But when uh, Iran is fighting on the side of Bashar al-Assad together with. Uh, um, together with uh, the, uh, the militias and Russia against certain sector of the S- Syrian people, there are those of us who are going to say uh, they've been given a free hand because and as a consequence of the nuclear deal. They have been not scrutinized. There has, they have not been, nobody even talks about it in the American media. So for me, I'd like that my colleagues in the American media take a Wider look and a deeper look when they are looking about our concerns, certainly go ahead and fall in love with Iran if you feel like it, but also pay attention as if we point out the pain that's coming our way because it's real pain, and if you just paper over it, it's going to harm our relationships even more.
4: Julia? Well yeah, I mean I wanted to, to go back to what David Ignatius was talking about, and that's the importance of getting the voices from the area from the region. To speak uh, you know, openly and honestly. And it's, and it's very difficult. And I'll give the example of Al Monitor. I mean, we are dedicated to getting the best and the brightest writers from the region, all perspectives, writing in our know, native language, t- translating it into English so everybody here can read it. And I will tell you, I mean, we have writers in Egypt, we have writers in Turkey, very well read. We have writers in Israel, the Palestinian territories. And, you know, for a long time in the Gulf, we had Bruce Rydell of the Brookings Institution because. Nobody wants to be out there, you know, unless it's to criticize, you know, the UAE criticizing Qatar or something, but in terms of writing honestly, in depth about their own country, their problems, what's happening, it's just very, I mean, and I'm sure a lot of people in in this audience know that, it's just very, very difficult, and and same thing with Egypt, I mean, you know, we, we get criticized for covering Egypt a certain way. I can tell you, I cover Congress, Everybody in Congress is just running out of patience with Egypt. And just a few months ago, they another $100 million went by the wayside because they cannot work with the Egyptians. The Egyptians will not tell them how they're going to get this money to the uh, you know different aid agencies, et cetera. And it's just a, a huge headache for, for people on Capitol Hill, for people in the State Department. And so they just raise up their hands and
0: move the money elsewhere. Well, thank you, one and all. This has been... A- not a cheerful discussion, (laughs) (laughs) but I think it's been an honest discussion.